everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to our series on Revelation. Today we are covering chapter 14, but I'm also going to bring back in the tail end of chapter 13 that speaks of the mark of the beast, because the mark of the beast comes back in in chapter 14 with a very serious warning. So it's really important we revisit that. But before we begin, one of our listeners out of Ohio had a suggestion and asked us to put scripture references, if we know them, in the beginning of the episode. Now, I'm happy to do that, and I'm going to start doing that today. Sometimes, though, when I'm teaching, different scriptures will just pop in my head, so I'll just rattle those off. So <laughs> if that's the case, then I can't, I can't put them in the beginning. But I do know that in this particular episode, there are certain places we are going to uh, revisit. So first of all, of course, we're going to be talking about Revelation chapter 14. So if you have a pen or pencil and you want to write these things down. Um, also, we are going to reference a verse out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 23. I'm going to be talking about a few different things in Luke chapter 12. I'm not quite sure of where the verses are. I'm going to be making a reference to Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. And then we're going to be in Matthew in a few places. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 13, verses 40 to 43. We're going to be in Matthew 24, Jesus's end time discourse, a couple different places in there. And then also in Matthew 27, verses 50 to 53. And then I also know that we are going to make a reference to Isaiah 63, 3. So if you wanted just to write those down, All right, so we're going to go ahead. I'm going to begin by reading this chapter, and it's going to take a couple of minutes. So if you just want to listen along or follow along, that'd be great. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels 
and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they shall have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had the power over fire. And he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Boy, there's a lot going on there. Um, But I'm going to begin back in chapter 13, if you can hang on for just a moment. You know, we closed out chapter 13 by talking about this unholy alliance or this unholy counterfeit trinity, right, that is going to form, and then they're going to work to deceive the world. And at the end of the chapter, we learn that the beast, known as the false prophet, whose job it is to get people to align with and worship the beast known as the Antichrist, well, he is going to require the people of the world at the time to take some kind of a mark if they want to engage in commerce, in buying and selling, things like food, supplies, or just basic necessities, or just to partake in society, in things that cost money or help make a living. So whatever decision, whatever decision people make who are alive at this time regarding this mark will determine the kind of life they live, literally, of course, but also spiritually, as we're going to see in this chapter. Now, no one knows what this mark is. I mentioned a few things in the last episode, things that people in society speculate about. And I want to revisit some of those, but also add another one. Some people speculate that it could be an implanted ID chip of some kind. And those things are actually being rolled out in the world right now in different test pilot programs. Corporations and even some countries or little cities within countries are testing this out on different people where a digital device will be implanted under their skin. So if they walk up to a vending machine, so to speak, and swipe their hand over a certain um, uh, identifier, then all of a sudden the product that they want will dispense. So this this is an option. The other thing people suggest and speculate on is whether or not it's some kind of a tattoo. Remember the Jews in Nazi Germany received a tattooed number on their forearm for the concentration camps. 
Now, the thing to remember in that, of course, is that that was a forced tattoo. That was not a choice they made. But either way, there are people that believe it could be a tattoo. Then there are some who believe it could be vaccine-related. As more viruses, some man-made, some not, find their way into society and vaccines have to keep coming out, some people speculate, could it be something in one of those? Not sure. But keep in mind that the mark must be on the hand or on the forehead. But I also want to mention another one, and I didn't mention it in the last episode, but what about something like a brand? You know, God's people, Christians, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, right? And then God also puts a seal on the 144,000 in chapter 7 and the 144,000 here in chapter 14. And we'll talk about the 144,000 in just a minute. But the word seal means it's an impression of some kind. Like when you stamp something in wax, you can see a symbol. You can see a mark of some kind. So some people speculate that it could be some type of a seal. That the mark of the Antichrist is going to be something that mimics something God has done. Remember, he's a counterfeit. Now, that word mark is actually interesting, the mark of the Antichrist, right? In the Greek, number 5480 in your Strong's Concordance, in the proper form, that word mark means an engraving, like an etching. And figuratively, a mark definitely means providing an undeniable identification, like a symbol that's going to give irrefutable connection between parties. So here's what's interesting about that word mark is that originally it was any impress on a coin or a seal that would be used by an engraver on a die, such as like a branding iron. Later, it became an identification marker, like an owner's unique brand mark. We see that with cattle, right? And so mark in this verse actually means one of two things. A stamp, an imprinted mark, the mark stamped on a person's forehead or the right hand, such as a badge that will be an identifier for followers of the Antichrist. Mark can also be something that is carved, sculpture, a graven work like, like an idol. Is something going to be carved into somebody? So these are things to just think of when you think of that word mark. We have to be careful throwing out a whole bunch of different ideas out there, but let's get to the root of the words that they were using so that we can put this in the proper context. Because at the end of the day, we do not know what this mark is yet. It's not quite clear. But we can be certain of is that throughout the ages, there have been reflections of these things. And so we just need to pay very close attention to the trends in society. But the thing I want to really point out is that whenever it comes, if we are alive during that, it appears that it is going to be a choice we get to make. Much like the early churches in the letters to Revelation, if you remember, in those letters, Jesus always gave them a choice at the end. If they didn't change, so they could either choose to stay the same way, but if they 
kept going the same way they were going, especially the churches that received a condemnation, the result would be this. However, if they repented and turned back to the Lord, the result would be this. Keep in mind, first century Christians were faced with the Roman Empire. They were faced with forced worship of Caesar. But they also had to choose whether or not they would partake in trade guilds where you could buy and sell your product. But the trade guilds were corrupt and they were perverse. And so true Christians didn't join the trade guilds. And as a result, they couldn't buy and sell. And as a result, many of them were beggarly and destitute. But it comes down to a choice. Are we going to align ourselves with the system, the worldly global system of the Antichrist, much like first century Christians had a choice to whether or not to align themselves with the Roman system all around them? Or are we going to follow the ways of Jesus, which is narrow and it's costly? See, it's easy right now to say, well, I wouldn't take the mark. But what if there's a prescription you need or food to feed your family or money to pay the mortgage on your house? What if you no longer had access to medicine or money to put a roof over your head? And don't forget, it's not like it's going to be advertised when the time comes that this is the mark of the beast get in line, right? It'll be, it'll be promoted through something else that's going to appeal to where society is at the time. Perhaps another advancement in technology or a step into the digital world that's going to make our lives better. No one knows. But let me go down a path of, say, an implanted chip for a minute, if you don't mind. What if the counterfeit, the antichrist and false prophet, tells everybody or puts out a campaign that convinces everyone that if they were to receive some kind of a digital marker on their hand, for example, that it would end child trafficking. Well, if there is an identifier that is of digital technology, we know that it most likely can track where people are. And so if it's promoted as something that could end child trafficking, then all of a sudden we know that we will know where predators are. We will know where all the children are. We will know where our own children are when they go out to play or when they go out to drive or when they go to the mall. People will be able to track people. It'll give a false sense of security. Or what if you lose your purse, your whole ID and everything, your wallet that's in there? Well, no need for a purse anymore because your ID, your medical history, your financial records are all in this chip. So now if you go to the hospital or you go to the grocery store or you go to the bank, all you have to do is swipe your hand and everything pulls up. And so whatever, however it's going to get communicated when the time comes, the marketing campaign, the messaging is going to appeal and play to our emotions. You watch. And it's going to cause many people to choose something that's going to affect them emotionally. And many in the church, sadly, will probably follow right along. 
Because keep in mind, according to George Barna's research, only 6% of adult Americans hold to a biblical worldview today. They're mixing Christianity with all the other worldviews out there. And only 4% of millennials hold to a biblical worldview. And so which path do you think most, quote, Christians will take? Christians who never study the Bible, Christians who don't believe the Bible is the infallible word of God anymore, and a lot of Christians who don't regularly go to church. And so many of those Christians will not truly understand what's coming. They might hear little sound bites, or they might see a little quote card on Instagram or a social media outlet, or they might read something in their devotional. But to truly start marrying scripture together and connecting the dots, they won't have a clue and they'll be deceived. And let's also mention in this how many people in the body of Christ today quench the Holy Spirit. So we are solely, sorely lacking in spiritual discernment, a gift of the Spirit, to be able to discern the motives behind different people in different situations. Perhaps that's why the first thing Jesus says in his end time discourse in Matthew 24 is, do not be deceived. And then he gives his discourse. Or how about later in his discourse in verse 24? For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Remember, the elect of God are the saints, are Christians. Well, who was going to be the false messiah? The, quote, instead of the Antichrist. And who was going to be doing the false signs and wonders to deceive people, even the elect? The false prophet, who's going to have fire come down from heaven. So my friends, do not just jump on whatever somebody tells you to do pertaining to marking up your body in some way. Please be very careful. Please pray. Please check in with headquarters first. first. That means check in with the Lord. Then make a wise choice. Because I have a feeling many will believe it's going to be for our good, whatever that mark is, or for the good of our family, or for the good of society, for the betterment of our fellow man. But at the end of the day, as you're going to see in this chapter, Jesus says anybody who takes this mark, anybody who worships the beast with this is going to suffer eternal torment. So this is no small matter. Now let's turn to chapter 14. The opening of chapter 14 is a complete contrast to all that, where all of a sudden there's a group of people who are literally standing as opposed to people who are going to be surrendering to the system of the beast and allowing themselves to be entrapped in that system. But this is a group of people standing in the throne room of God. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. So this is a group of people standing with the lamb of God, standing with Jesus Christ himself. And instead of the cryptic name of the beast, 
They carry the Lamb's Father's name on their forehead, another feature that's picked up in Revelation 22.4. And so instead of arrogance and lies from the other system, these people are going to be known for their integrity of speech as well as their pure sexual relations. But there's little context given as to this 144,000. Is it the 144,000 we addressed in chapter 7, those marked Jewish men from the tribes of Israel? Many believe so because they too were sealed on their foreheads. But others believe that perhaps this is Christians who are found in heaven. Either way, they are special. They are redeemed from the earth. They are set apart. They did not defile themselves with women. They were virgins. And they were redeemed from among men, being what's called first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And some believe that that word first fruits means that this is a picture of the harvest that's coming at the end of the age, a harvest that has been purified and made holy through Jesus Christ. You know, when you study the Old Testament and you learn about the significance of first fruit offerings, you come to understand how important this statement is in chapter 14. To be a first fruit offering to not just the Father, but to the Lamb, to Jesus Christ, is no small matter. Let me give you an example of this as it pertains to Jesus himself. Jesus was called the first fruits of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 20-23. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So this is significant because in order to understand Christ as the first fruit of the resurrection, I need to take you into one of the feasts of the Lord for just a moment. And if you've never studied the feasts of the Lord, I encourage you to do so. You've got four spring feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, and then Pentecost. Then you have the summer, and then you come into the fall where there's three more. And you have the uh, Rosh Hashanah, which is the blowing of trumpets. You have 10 days later, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then you have Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Now it's interesting, the first four spring feasts of the Lord, Jesus actually filled to absolute perfection. Even the time of day things happened. Many people now believe that the three fall feasts of the Lord, Jesus will fulfill at his second coming. That remains to be seen. But in those spring feasts, there is one during the week of Passover that is called the Feast of First Fruits. And it is celebrated actually on the Sunday after Passover, which would coincide with what we would call Resurrection Sunday. Now, on the Feast of First Fruits, it was the feast of the first fruit of the harvest. They would come out of the major rainy season, and the very first harvest of the season would be the barley. And so a farmer would bring two sheaves of this early harvest and present it to the high priest. 
And on this day, the high priest would then take those sheaves and stand before God and wave them above his head in thankfulness and in worship. Well, what happened with Jesus? He said, it says he became the first fruits of the resurrection, which means he became the first fruit of an eternal harvest of souls when he was resurrected from the dead. He was the first fruit offering to his father of many more to come. And why could he offer himself on that day? Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he became the true high priest of heaven. Read the book of Hebrews. It's all about Jesus as your high priest. So just like the earthly high priest who is standing there on the feast of first fruits, waving his sheaves before God on that day, Jesus, as the true high priest, offered not just himself as the first fruit offering, the first one raised from the dead, but brought his own offering with him for the Father. When graves were opened and dead people came out of those graves, came to life, and went into the holy city of Jerusalem. Can you just imagine the scene? I'm going to read it for you. It's from Matthew 27, verses 50 to 53. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. They were the first fruits. They came in their own order, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus was the first, then others came, and one day we will have our order. I mean, can you imagine that scene for just a minute? <laughs> you know, if you see Grandpa Joe walking down the street, right? Friends, there's so much to our Hebraic faith that we miss. It's so sad, and it's so beautiful and educational, and it teaches us so much about the Bible. So first fruit offerings, they're significant to God. Did you know that every new moon, God required a first fruit offering from his people? Because when they gave it to him, he blessed them them for the month. And the Feast of Pentecost, when that comes, the high priest goes back out and he's waving these two loaves of bread for the wheat harvest. Well, this is 144,000 people that are a first fruit offering of this great harvest that is coming at the end of the age. It is such a powerful picture. And I just, just, I just don't want us to miss the significance of it. Because especially at a time when the Antichrist system is unfolding upon the earth, all of a sudden, we have this hope that if we stay the course, if we don't follow that system, and if we remain pure as they are pure, then we too will join in that harvest. See, God is a God of order. And I just love this whole picture. And so no one knows for certain, again, if this is the 144,000 from chapter 7. But we do know that they are very special. You know, and I also find it interesting in this contrast 
that their speech is pure. They speak pure things, especially in chapter 13 when we learn that the Antichrist and all who follow him speak nothing but blasphemy against God. What a contrast. And they sing a song in the throne of heaven that nobody else knows but them. A song that they're singing before the throne, before the four living creatures, before the elders. It's just such a stunning picture. But then it shifts. And now all of a sudden it moves on to this procession of angels who are giving messages from God to men. The first angel is flying in the midst of heaven with what? The everlasting gospel. The gospel. That's a reminder to us that the gospel is still available to people to save them from the coming wrath. The bowls of wrath are just around the corner. But even in this age of great apostasy, God is merciful. And the gospel is going to be preached to every tribe, nation, tongue, and people yet again. Remember what it says in Peter. He desires that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. And no wonder the angel calls for the fear and worship of God. We should fear and worship God because no one would do a thing like that. Now, a second angel comes and says, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, this is the first time such a place as Babylon is mentioned in Revelation. And I find it interesting you know, the exodus out of Egypt, you know, those judgments and the picture we have from chapter 13, and now we have Babylon. It's like these Old Testament stories are finding their way back into Revelation. And I just find that fascinating. And we're going to get to Babylon in chapters 16 and 17, because that's when <laughs> that's when Babylon falls. But for whatever reason, it's mentioned here. Then the third angel comes with a strong warning. And this is why we spent so much time on the mark, because this angel shares the terrible consequence that's going to happen to people who give in to the pressure of the Antichrist system. When they take the mark of the beast on their head or on their hand and they worship him, they're going to be worshiping the system. There are dire consequences to anyone who does that, even believers And the angel uses language like that of hell when he speaks of unceasing torment. These people, they're going to share the same fate of the one whom they surrendered. That's something to think about. That's why we got to share the gospel. We got to teach people the Bible. People don't know the Bible. They don't understand all this. They're not going to understand the significance of their um, eternity unless we tell them. Because when I read something like this, you know what comes to mind? A spirit never dies. We are either going to be living eternally with Christ in glory or an eternal torment with never a break from torment. It says they are going to be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, Jesus. That's, that's a frightening picture. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever received the mark. This is a very sobering message. 
Listen, I, I don't know if we grasp the enormity of it, the gravity of the beast, the gravity of the mark. Billions of souls will be lost. Billions. We get to the middle of Revelation um, with a, another very sobering message, and this is for the saints of God alive at the time. And it says in verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And that word patience is also endurance. It's going to take great endurance for the saints to make it. That's why Jesus would give those commendations to two of those churches in the letter to Revelation, those letters to the churches in Revelation. It is it is a good thing in the sight of the Lord to patiently endure, to keep his commandments and faith in him, even when it's hard. I tell you, friends, we're going to have to put our money where our mouth is. I mean, do we really trust what Jesus says in Luke 12 when he says, do not worry? Do not worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about your body, what you're going to put on. Life is more than food. It's more than clothing. Will we remember that? If this is us at the end of the age, will we remember the story of Exodus that he fed his people with manna, that he gave them quail in the desert, that he didn't let them starve to death? He gave them water. Will we remember that he didn't let their sandals wear out for 40 years? Will we remember that? So important is this message that the angel is giving that a special beatitude is actually written for it. Now, the beatitudes are found in Matthew 5, where it's like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Beatitudes are typically twofold. They have a blessing and they have a reward. Well, here we have this blessing. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That blessing is also twofold. They are blessed, meaning they can now rest from travail. And since the record of their loyalty has been kept, they can now look forward to a reward. But the blessing is quantified by a from now on. So in other words, from this point forward, from the reign of the beast, all who die who have not taken his mark will be blessed. The fourth angel shouts, and one like the Son of Man is on the clouds. And this is a clear reference to Daniel 7, verse 13. And the angel is telling him it is time for the harvest, whether this is to gather the tares for burning or wheat for storing from the parable of Matthew, Matthew 13. It's not immediately clear, but this is where mid-tribulation uh, belief comes in, where this is going to be that time of reaping that Jesus talks about in the wheat and the tares. He also mentions the reaping in his end times discourses. But what's interesting about this is that when they reap the earth in this passage, they are sent into the wine press to be stomped. So it's a judgment where the reaping that takes place in the wheat in the tares, the tares go into fire. So it's just something to keep in mind as we read through this. Then a fifth angel appears and he has a sickle in his hand. The sixth angel then comes and he directs the sickle to grapes, which are to be trampled on the great wine press of God's wrath, which is outside the city. 
Now, a wine press was a trough in which workers trampled grapes with their bare feet. I'm sure some of you know that. And it would cause the juice to then flow down into the vat. Well, this is a picture of how God's wine is going to be made. His wine of wrath. And Isaiah 63, 3 is a good descriptor of that as well. And so the image of the wine press, these, this cluster, this harvest being stomped is symbolic of an unbelievable quantity of blood, an unparalleled slaughter of life of human beings. That's going to equate to over 180 square miles. This is great bloodshed. And what many believe and are in agreement on is that it's probably an anticipation of the battle of Armageddon, which we haven't talked about yet in the Bible, in Revelation, I mean. It's going to be a defeat of all human armies, and vultures are going to be cleaning up the corpses. But this is going to be something so great and so significant. So that's chapter 14. And as we close out this chapter, these six angels are going to be soon followed by seven more who are not necessarily going to be giving proclamations, but are going to be acting out as they tip over the seven bowls of wrath onto the earth, the last seven bowls of judgment. So I just want to thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for your patience and let me explain the mark. When we open up chapter 15, I think we're going to open up with understanding the order of Revelation a little bit because we can see in this chapter that there were a couple things brought in that haven't even been discussed yet, but yet they appeared to have already been completed. And so I don't want you to be confused. We are going to talk about that. But I just want to thank you for joining me today. Until next time, God bless you. Mm-hmm.